This podcast is brought to you by Giant Food. And today, more than ever, they are committed to you because we are all in this together so we can continue to share the little things that matter. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Peace, everyone, and welcome to the Edible Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa L. Jones, broadcasting live from the lobby of The Line, D.C. This podcast is where dynamic people of color in the food and agriculture space share their personal food journeys, passions, and perspectives that stem from the land, all exemplifying the spirit of activism in their own edible way. Let's get started. And welcome to the Edible Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa L. Jones, broadcasting here on Full Service Radio. For today's show, I am speaking with community gardener and longtime food justice advocate, Duran Chavez. Duran has many, many accomplishments under his belt, establishing himself as a forward-thinking and action-taking leader in his Richmond, Virginia community. From serving as a clean air ambassador, to founding the annual Happily Natural Festival, Duran has been committed to protecting the environment and changing the narrative in marginalized communities while promoting urban agriculture as a means for resilience and a solution for economic inequality. Duran, welcome to Edible Activist. I am so happy to speak with you today. Welcome. Hey, what's up? How are you doing? I'm doing so well. I'm doing so well. Um, Again, I have to shout out, we were talking about this just before we started, but I have to shout out Xavier Brown, who connected us. He's amazing. Thank you, Xavier. X, aka X. Yeah. (laughs) He's great. (laughs) For sure. That's the homie, man. I really appreciate it. He is definitely the homie for sure, for sure. So, Duran, I haven't met you in person. I really don't know you, right? But we're going to be friends after this. We're friends now, okay? Like, however however you want to define that. Sure. We're going to be friends because you're cool. You're cool people. I've seen, oh. I've seen your talk, your TED Talk in person, not in person, but I saw it online and I so much enjoyed it um, and have just seen other things that you posted. I love your work. And it seems like you've been doing, like you've been doing this food justice um, systems work for a very long time, even though I don't know you, but does it feel like that to you? And I also just feel like because of the midst of COVID-19 and everything that you've been doing as of, as of late um, and currently that this is just kind of the beginning, though you've been doing this for quite some time. Do you feel that way? Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel sometimes I feel like it's only been a flash in a pan. <laughs> uh, but we've been doing this for like when I count off, it's like almost ooh, 12 years. Wow. You know what I mean? Uh, in some iteration or or, 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 or other. Uh, but I've been growing for about eight years. OK. You know, like doing the actual like hands in the dirt 
Uh, but the first four years was really just connecting farmers to uh, low access communities, uh, black farmers to low access communities. So sometimes when I do the numbers, I'm like, you know, I don't count those years because I wasn't growing, but I was still doing, you know, aggregation of produce uh, and and farm and pop up farmers markets. So I feel like that counts. Uh but sometimes I forget that. Yeah, I did. I, before I started growing things, I was working with farmers hands on in communities of color, you know, getting uh, produce to those folks who snap and things like that. So yeah, sometimes it feels like it's only been a moment. But I'll be honest, uh, ever since I started doing this, my life has changed. I mean, dramatically. Wow. The work has uh, it, it, it was it was a shift. Uh, as an activist, from a rhetorical, theoretical framework to an actual hands-on practice. And, you know, dealing with the food system requires you to move from theory to practical application. It's, it's impossible to live in a, in a food justice framework and not have some sort of tangible, you know, hands-on, something that I can touch see, smell, hold, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it, it, being in that space is just, it, it. you know, sometimes time becomes a very existential conversation. <laughs> it's like, how long have I been doing this? A minute. Okay. Yeah. It, and stuff moves so fast, but it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. I love that. I love that so much. So you were born and raised in Richmond, correct? That's correct. Um, yes, I, I'm a native. Yes, I, I haven't been to Richmond in quite some time, but I do. I love Richmond for many, many, many reasons. And when it comes to, you know, the food landscape there, I definitely just want you to um, kind of give us a, a, a image, if you will, and your words of just what the food landscape in Richmond looks like. And I chuckled when I was um, watching your your TED talk and. Um, and you were showing a map and the map populated all these like brown spots. And you're just like, those brown spots represent people of color in, you know, <laughs> in these marginalized yeah. areas. It's just, it, it was, it was, it was it, it funny, but not funny. But I'm like, yeah, yeah, there it is. There it is. <laughs> Very clever, by the way. Yeah. Very clever. And we're going to tell folks where to find that TED Talk because I watched it like three times. I enjoyed it that much. Um, so if you can just walk us through like what the food landscape is in Richmond, Virginia, because a lot of folks don't know what that looks like. Right. So like many uh, metropolitan cities across the country, Richmond, Virginia uh, is uh, stifled or bears the scars of racial discrimination in the form of redlining, Jim Crow, you know, et cetera. And we see the vestiges of those uh, discriminatory policies, uh, specifically uh, as it relates to redlining uh, and urban renewal uh, in the the capital city of Virginia. Uh, So, uh, in the south side of Richmond and in the east end of Richmond, uh, we have high levels of concentrated poverty that is a direct result of 
uh, the development of the interstate highway system, as well as the discrimination against people of African ancestry uh, from accessing mortgages and financing through the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, New Deal efforts to uh, build wealth through home ownership. Um, back in the 50s, we know that the federal government drew this initiative across the country to try to uh, make it easier for folks to uh, access the finances to mortgage homes and refinance homes. But we know that black communities were denied that on the basis of race. And so the redlining was, you know, the actual uh, denial of those neighborhoods that were black, irregardless of their quality. And then also we know that the interstate highway system destroyed major black epicenters across the country. Um, so, you know, Today, 2020, or when I did that talk, um, I think it was 2014, uh, we know that it's high concentrations of poverty in that area because, you know, if you deny Black people or anybody from being able to access loans and funding for their community, you know, if you fast forward, you can see the results, right? If you said, okay, this community can have funding in those communities can, you see the difference. And so a lot of times people don't draw the connection between those discriminatory uh, housing policies and the, uh, you know, property values in those communities. And, you know, the conventional conversation is that grocery stores don't want to go into communities that are poor, but we know that that's a very subjective choice. Um, But when you look at the maps of Richmond, Virginia, or any metropolitan city, predominantly people of color live in these areas that are concentrated in poverty. And those areas are the areas that, you know, don't have access to full-on grocery stores uh, in their communities. And, you know, the conversation is that because of population density or income, uh, averages and in uh, those neighborhoods that that's why the grocery stores don't exist in those neighborhoods. So, I mean, you know, the foodscape in Richmond, Virginia, on one level is a direct result of the discriminatory policies uh, as it relates to uh, housing as well as urban development. But at the same time, we also know that the reason why Black people live in these communities in urban centers is a result of the Great Migration from rural communities into urban epicenters as a result of racial terrorism. You know, people didn't want to live in the rural area because, you know, the KKK, whether or not people had a membership card or not, were definitely uh, adverse to Black people having full access to all of the you know, resources necessary to live a thriving, you know, lifestyle. So people moved from the rural areas into the urban centers, uh, searching for better opportunities and et cetera. Uh, so Richmond reflects that just like Atlanta reflects that, Baltimore reflects that, um, you know, D.C. reflects that, uh, Harlem, uh, Philadelphia, and et cetera. Um, when we talk about how when you live in these uh, areas, uh, what happens when 
poverty is concentrated, right? And the overwhelming uh, number of pathologies that are associated with uh, uh, concentrating poverty um, really multiply as a result of, you know, just locking people into a, uh, uh, well, locking people into very stifling conditions where it's, you don't have resources, you know, there aren't any um, opportunities, education is poor, you know, all of these different things that we talk about when we talk about poverty correlates with race. Um, so anyway, the uh, USDA ERS map uh, uh, indicates that these areas uh, in Richmond, uh, south side and north side, don't have access to healthy food. So, you know, the work has looked like how do we resource those communities up? Not only through like the the uh, infinitesimal search for a amenable grocery store, but more direct action in terms of how do we build up the community to take ownership of aspects of the of the food system, whether it be production distribution, uh, processing, whatever, like the conversation is like, how do we build uh, community capacity to respond to the need for food justice in, in, in those communities? You know, when I was, um, again, on your site, <laughs> there was a quote that you had on there. You might even set this quote um, at your TED Talk some years back and um it was the one by is is it Paulo Fer Ferrer? My Gary, Gary. Yeah, Paulo Ferrer. And it says the oppressed must be their own example in the struggle for their redemption. Mm-hmm. And when I think about that, and it definitely hit me, and it's just always, you know, um always at the forefront of my mind, um, in in our mindsets and those who you know, are, are, you know, in these oppressed um, environments and, and spaces, you know, it's, when does it become a thing or what is it, when does it become, like, how do we tap into um, those spaces or those mindsets to change those mindsets? Because a lot of this, you know, is going to be a mindset change in some respects. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And that work is hard. You just can't change yeah. anyone's mind. That's hard work. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when I entered into this work, I entered into this work through a platform that we created called Happily Natural Day, which is a festival. But the thematic mission of the festival was to promote cultural identity, uh, social change and holistic health and wellness for communities of color, specifically African communities. The whole idea was for us to love ourselves. And that part of that reasoning was because the system of white supremacy uh, has created a hierarchy of human value where communities of color, Black people specifically, are at the bottom rung and are taught to negate their identity in order to assimilate and, you know, flourish by disassociating themselves with their blackness, 
So part of that conversation is, you know, how do we think of ourselves? What do we see of ourselves? How do we see ourselves in contrast to whiteness? And a lot of that is, you know, a deep dive into what we call internalized oppression and internalized racism. And what happens is that when you live in a society of white supremacy, uh, the system creates all of these false realities where black people are savages, are uneducated, don't have the capacity to do it. You know, this whole dependency complex that revolves around the narrative of white supremacy doing a good job when they colonized and enslaved black people. And so by virtue of that, like the vestiges of that lives on in our day to day as we, you know, try to live and navigate and, you know, uh, engage with, you know, society as a greater whole. So uh, that work of detoxing, you know, communities, black communities specifically from these ideas that black people can't or that the white man's ice is colder is a real it's, it's, it's a real reality. It's a challenge, but what we have at our disposal are so many examples of Black people, uh, men, women, organizations, movements, moving in a, in, a, in a very deliberate and intentional direction towards self-determination uh, and uh, self-sufficiency. So, you know, one of the most influential for me has been the Garvey movement. You know, Marcus Garvey um, uh, built a movement of millions across the country around the idea that Black people can do for self, do for self, and create systems that would serve their needs and build, you know, a new reality for people of African ancestry in the wake of, you know, Western hegemony and imperialism that has, you know, emerged over the last 400 years. Um, Another tool, uh, the civil rights movement, you know, people like Fannie Lou Hamer, Stokely Carmichael, or Kwame Ture, um, they serve as really amazing examples of what you can do, uh, what we have done to counter uh, that narrative of, you know, Black people not having the capacity. I mean, Fannie Lou Hamer is an example explicitly in terms of urban, well, in terms of just food, uh, agriculture. You know, we know her more reverently in relationship to her Mississippi uh, uh, Democratic Convention speech. But what is less talked about is her work around the Freedom Farms Cooperative um, and her efforts to ensure that farmers have land and housing that reflects uh, the building of a very uh, uh, a very uh, uh, what we call it holistic approach to the needs of uh, black people in not only rural but also urban environments. And then, you know, the Black Panther Party, uh, the Black Liberation Army, uh, Republican of Africa, um, you know, we can go way back and think about people like Gabriel Prosser, Nat Turner, uh, Toussaint, Le, Toussaint 
Lopter. Um, these are people who understood the importance of black people standing up, affirming their identity, creating realities where they were self-determining. And I very much believe in my philosophy of this work that it is uber important, you know, throwing back to the quote from Paula Freire, for people of African ancestry to be the example of their own, be the exemplary of their own liberation, not looking outside of their own community, but seeing themselves as the the protagonist and uh, this uh, work to uh, create a thriving, holistic, resilient, and sustainable reality for themselves. And now I try to apply that to the work of uh, food justice. Thank you. Thank you so much for breaking that down. That was beautiful. All right, guys, we are going to take a really short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Perfect Day, produced by Artists Authentic. For more of Authentic's work, visit allornothingstudios.com. This podcast is brought to you by Giant Food. Whether you are concerned about diabetes, heart health, losing weight, or just want to improve family mealtimes, Giant has a team of nutritionists ready to help you make the best decisions to meet your health and wellness goals. You can check out their personalized consultations online or by phone. Just go to giantfood.com nutrition, or they have nutritionists who are available to answer any of your questions at nutrition at giantfood.com. Okay, so Duran, um, you have been working on a very exciting project as of late, right? Because everything just took a turn within a matter of days, weeks ago. It just went left real quick. <laughs> and um, you, in, in response to um, COVID-19, um, you know, the work still continued. And um, you have been... Um, executing a number of garden bed projects around Richmond um, and which what you call resiliency garden, um, a resiliency garden project. And I have been beaming with joy seeing the, and I know you have too, I'm talking as if I initiated this project, just the <laughs> overwhelming response from those who have just contributed to this project and just willing to step in. And so um, I know audience is just like, what the heck are we talking about? But sorry, I just got so excited. I just went off. Um, but definitely, definitely want to have you touch on um, your garden project that you've been working on as of late with others. I know others have definitely been been helping you to, to execute this around Richmond. So we can just touch on that a bit more and just learn about the amazing things that have come out of this. Oh, yeah. So, you know, uh, what's funny about this stuff is that I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday 
We've been talking about food security for a long time. I mean, you know, you asked me how long I've been in this work and like how does it feel, you know, does it feel like it's been a short time? When I look back, we've been talking about food security for at least, at minimum, at least 12 years. So when COVID-19 popped out, I, you know, immediately it was like, okay, this is, this is, this is not a test. This is not a test. This is, you know, this is the real deal. People are being laid off. People can't go to the grocery store due to immuno uh, uh, deficiencies. Um, there's really real pressures related to the food system. Uh, we're seeing reports from you know major meat processors that they're not able to meet the demand because of folks at their plants having you know this issue. You know, before that, we were hearing about uh, the immigrant communities that are the bulk of our food production uh, labor, not having access to their visas and etc. It was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is real. This is this is the ish is hitting the fan. So, um, when it comes down to uh, us responding, like with the resiliency garden project. It was really designed to be an immediate response to the insecurity uh, related to food that people would face as a, as COVID nineteen, uh, you know, started to take root, you know, in our society. You know, one of the things that we thought would be important was to be like, all right, well, on a therapeutic level, people need to be able to have something to hope for. So growing their own food is one element of that. But then beyond that, just in terms of just creating an opportunity for people to start to really respect, understand, and appreciate where their food comes from would be through the actual process of of, of growing their own food. So, you know, we started... Uh, delivering raised beds to community. And it's been a wow moment for me. I'm really, <laughs> uh, I'm going through this whole like deep reflection and introspection around, you know, the learnings that are uh, coming out as a result of this work. Basically what we've been doing is we've been asking community members, do they need help with food security? And if they do need help with that, we are delivering them a raised bed, six by four, 24 square feet, so that they can grow their own food. And I mean, as a 101 introduction into like this work, it is an amazing opportunity. There's so many, we've received almost 300 requests for raised beds. And, 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 and this has only been a month of promoting. And, and and I don't want to say we really promoted it. I mean, you know, it went kind of viral in our community, which is dope. But we never pushed it out there like that. It was just something that people just heard about. And um, that work has really inspired me because it's like, okay, what we've been talking about for all these years is now becoming very practical, very important to people across, you know, the community. And, um, you know, 
my hope and vision is that beyond just people getting their own raised bed, they'll start to understand that this opportunity for you to start making money or using food as a form of currency, trading, bartering, uh, beyond bartering and trading, but also appreciating that there are hands that have been growing this food for you for years and they need support too. So, you know, how to connect to your local farmers, um, how to uh, appreciate the value added work that folks do. You know, it's one thing to grow food. It's another to turn it into a product that can be uh, uh, sold or uh, bartered, you know, across the system. So, yeah, I mean, um, I am thoroughly humbled by the opportunity to do what we've been training to do. <laughs> I say that, you know, I laugh because it's like, it, it feels like that's what, it's, it feels like what we've been doing for the last 12 years is training for this moment. It's like this moment was like in the ether, like circling around, kind of like, you know, uh, sending warning shots, letting us know like, yeah, at some point the food system might feel a bit compromised and this work will show up as uh, a sim- a sign of hope, uh, a way out, a strategy for resiliency. And so when we started doing, when we started calling it Resiliency Gardens, it was really, you know, Building on this conversation about climate justice, uh, this conversation around food justice, uh, this conversation around racial justice. And we were like, you know, if our community gets hit by a significant, you know, event such as COVID-19, what is it that we're going to put in play that will help us bounce back and uh, pivot? in a way that would allow us to move forward without it being a significant hiccup. I mean, my, even my own personal narrative, I, I worked for a botanical garden that shut down this community engagement programs and let me go as a result of COVID-19. And in my like strategies for resiliency, you know, I had to pull a toolkit out and be like, boom, all right, well, you know, I don't have a job with these guys anymore, but that doesn't mean that the work stops. I've been doing this for a long time, even before I worked for the Botanical Garden. So how do we create strategies and systems so that we can maintain the workflow and continue to meet the needs of the community? So that's just really been what it's been all about, man. And this is a beautiful journey. It's a very, uh, huh. it's an opportunity for wonderment and joy. I, I live in this space of just like constant, you know, immersion and just wonder of like, wow, this is amazing. Uh, We built the system and it works. Oh, well, we need to refine it. But at the same time, you know, uh, thankful for the interdependence that community members are showing uh, and supporting the work. It's not me. It's really about people showing up and saying, hey, I want to support this. I believe in this and I want to put my full self in play to help deliver wood and make a donation and um, build raised beds and grow seedlings and all that type of stuff. So this is really just a 
really awesome opportunity to show what community can do when it really believes in itself. So, wow. Well, I want to laugh with you earlier because, like you said, this is the work that you've been promoting and doing for the longest time. And it was interesting because um, I had a writer reach out to me um, some weeks ago to do a story just about my work. Um, And she, and then when everything took a turn, um, she reached out and she was just like, Hey, you know, so sorry. Um, You know, things have been crazy, obviously with COVID-19, you know, we're still going to do the story, but just wanted to check in to see if, you know, if anything has changed, if you're handling things differently. And I didn't know how to respond to her. I really just didn't. And so it took me a while to get back to her. And I was just like, well, I'm not understanding, you know, what, um, what you're asking. I was like, is the story changing? I mean, I understand there's some aspects, you know, you guys may be, you know, adjusting, you know, due to the climate. And she was like, no, the story isn't changing. Um, you know, I just want to see if you've been handling things, you know, differently in, 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 with, with COVID-19. And, you know, my real response, to that, I don't even remember if I responded back to her because I have so many emails and I have to prioritize. But anyway, <laughs> the point was, in my mind, I'm like, if you've listened to the shows and if you've seen the work online, what what we're experiencing is what every single edible activist that I have talked to and every black and brown person on the land has been working towards and working on for the, no, nothing has changed. The mission has never changed. Right. The work has never changed. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I don't understand. Same <laughs> I, I was just I, I laugh understanding my yeah, head against the wall. Like, no, like this is the point, you know, we have been, talking about this to prepare everyone, including myself, including myself to this point. So no, nothing has changed. So I literally, I'm, you're talking the whole time and I'm like nodding my head crazily, like, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the same. <laughs> it's funny because like, I try to, uh, be very, uh, graceful in that because I'm like, yo, we've been talking about this for a long time. I'm not trying to throw it in your face like, ha, I told you so. <laughs> but uh, that's part of, you know, that is part of the inner dialogue. Like, I thought we've been I, I, I learned, I heard about this from somebody else. So the farmers that engaged me were like, yo, what do you do if the grocery stores go? And now we're in a very real Reality, when you go to the grocery store, I don't even really want to go in the grocery store because, you know, all of the, you know, rigmarole that you got to go through, you know, you got to make sure you got your mask on, mm-hmm. you know, you got a million people in there, people that might not think about social distancing, you know what I mean? Like, I ain't trying to catch any, you know, I ain't trying to, I'm, 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 I'm trying to stay safe. I got kids. I want to make sure that I'm living and thriving. So, you know, all that anxiety is bundled up and like, well, what can I do to make sure that I don't have to go to this thing? And it's, it's funny to me. So I, I just laugh, you know, personally, I just try to engage, you know, the community with grace and like, uh, you know, this is not nothing new for me as far as a conversation, but welcome to the dialogue. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> now you're in tune. 
Yeah, like welcome to the room. Like we've been talking about this for a while. What's your name? You know, what brings you to the discussion? You know? Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. What you say, just approach with grace and mm-hmm. welcome. Here, here we are. Mm-hmm. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ron, I, I'm before we close. You know, I'm just I'm really curious into um, what your perspective is on the new normal. And I, I kind of already know that just gathering from our conversations. And again, none of this is none of this is new. But how do you see the because it will it will be a new normal. Things will definitely be different. Right. And yeah. what is your just given, you know, just given just recent events and just even with your own experience with, you know, um, departing ways with your job due to this, um, the situation, the climate um, and working on the garden resiliency um, project. And in addition to just the years of always, you know, being in this space, what do you see as the new normal moving forward? Wow, that's a great question. So, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, And one of the forefront thoughts is that we've been social distanced for a long time. Like, this is not like social distancing as far as like race like it's not new it's like there <laughs> i say well we've been like you know there's parts of my city where like the amount of black people that live in those areas very minimal uh you know think about gentrification think about just urban development um but beyond the, beyond just the the the, the de facto desegregation of schools and neighborhoods um you know the new normal i'm hoping that we're writing you know the formula for how we engage as communities i feel like this opportunity is primed for us to design and co-create what our realities will be in you know perpetuity irrespective of the pandemic like, what does it look like for us to draw closer as communities and really lift up the theme of interdependence? Like, what does that mean? Like, you know, are you in it for like hot second when it's convenient? Or do you really believe in like intrinsically like human uh, kind has a accountability to one another beyond you know, the divisions of religion, race, class. Um, so I feel I feel hopeful in this moment, you know, and I think that we have a lot of opportunities to really put into practice what it means to be a, a true human family. Uh, and I feel like the new normal for us, for me in particular, is really around um, having your own is, if, if that makes sense to people, like, like, what do I have as an individual, as a community, as an organization, and how do I share? And how do I work in collaboration with others that have other things that I don't have so that we as a community can grow and be prosperous and not be stressed out and, you know, feeling uh, anxiety and et cetera? I hope that's the normal. 
Um, I also respect the fact that, you know, when it comes to conversation about inclusivity and racial equity, like all of that, <laughs> ironically, has gone on the back burner. <laughs> Oh it's God. funny. Think about it. Like, really, like, before COVID-19, everybody was racial equity this and inclusivity that and diversity that. I have not heard nobody <laughs> talking about any, any I was trying not to burst out laughing. There's a lot. There's a lot that has simmered down since all of this. Yes. <laughs> Wild to me. <laughs> yeah. Like, in, in the wake of hearing that Black communities are more adversely affected by COVID-19, how diminished the conversation around inclusivity and diversity is. I'm saying that people ain't really won't buy out that life, but it seems like there's a lot of marketing and PR around their inclusivity and diversity efforts. And when those monies were not really available to continue that conversation, people shut their gates up. So I wish them the well, but I just feel like this this community this type of work doesn't it, it, when 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 the crisis hits it really is a true test of how really about that life those organizations and individuals really were. Speak on it. This is the time to really show up. You know what I mean? And this is the time to really put the pedal to the metal and really show how committed you were or are to that work. And a lot of people are, you know. Showing their true colors, and it's it's beautiful. I think it's majestic to you know see that. And I'm like, all right, okay. Well, you know, resiliency is the true conversation. And how do you build resiliency? And do you do you build resiliency by stopping your work around diversity and inclusion? Mm. That's a hell of a question. You know what I'm saying? I I personally don't think you can, but maybe. Some of these organizations feel like, you know, they can shut down their inclusivity and racial equity work and still build resiliency. I don't know how that works. Maybe, you know, the next couple of months will show me how that works. But I really don't think that that works in that way. So I feel like the new normal for all the courageous and brave folks will mean how do you wrap your head around being socially distanced? but still engaging communities and providing resources and access to capital so that communities are not marginalized. And I'm thoroughly excited to find the folks that are ready to talk about that type of collaborative, collective impact activity. Duran, where can folks find you and where, how can we donate to the project? Because we want to support. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm Deron Chavis on everything. Um, you know, happily natural day. Uh, you can always reach out by any form of social media, whether it's social media, uh, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Uh, our website is thenaturalfestival.com. Uh, that's where we're doing all of our organizing right now. Uh, people can go in and register as volunteers. They can pledge in-kind support, make a donation. Um, or if you're interested in getting a raised bed, you know, you can hit up, hit us up and we'll definitely, uh, we're, we're still accepting requests. I mean, we're at 300 plus at this point and I'm excited about it because, you know, even in my 
journey on the unemployment line. Like I'm doing my thing, but this is giving me, you know, something to get up and do every day. You know, like who's next? What? Who am I going to meet today that's going to be in addition to this uh, uh, complex divine network of 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 of, of human care and earth care. So yeah, look, reach out to the Natural Festival, Duran Chavis, Happily Natural Day, do the Google search and hit us up, man. I'm looking forward to meeting anybody that's of, uh, of like mine who wants to contribute to the new normal of interdependence in our community. Bet. All right. Y'all heard that. Okay, Duran. So we are going to do a quick rapid fire before um, I let you go. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. All right, all right. So, what is your favorite veggie? My favorite veggie is ginger right now. Ooh, I love ginger every day. Smoothies. Yeah, actually. ginger is hitting right now. This is giving me all the mucus decongestion that I need. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, yep. All right. Yep. What is your favorite fruit? Ooh. Uh, strawberries. I'm on a strawberry kick. Um, really not feeling the fact that strawberries, uh, go bad so fast. <laughs> yeah. It's like the gift and the curse. Like they're so delicious, but I got to eat them within seven days. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, at least that's your excuse why you ate them all so quickly, you know? I'll, I'll tell that to my family. Okay. I will. <laughs> It was gonna go bad anyway. I mean, I had to eat them. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Okay, sweet, spicy, sour, salty, savory, or bitter? Savory. Savory. I am a big fan of curry, Mm. so I'm on a I'm on a savory kick, like heavy. One action step someone can take towards edible activism: plant a seed, watch it grow. Harvest it and put it inside of your dish for dinner. There it is. There you have it. Deron, thank you so much for chatting with me today. This was an absolute pleasure. I, again, once again, soaked up, soaked up words, soaked up wisdom. So thank you for spending your time with me. And oh, thank you. All right. Peace, everyone. Thank you, everyone, yeah, for tuning day. in. We are here live on Full Service Radio every Wednesday at 11 a.m., where you can catch today's episode on fullserviceradio.org, as well as iTunes and Spotify. Be sure to follow me at Food Talks in Color on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Are you an edible activist? Sure you are. Come join me on the show. I would love to feature you. Just shoot me a DM on the gram. Peace and blessings all. And remember, there is no culture without agriculture.